today we read an iconic passage, the calling of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. When I read it, you'll probably remember hearing the first section. That's what most preachers preach on. However, the second part of the chapter isn't preached on very much for reasons that you shall soon see. But the words are familiar because we hear them later from Jesus that doesn't make them easier to understand or even like. So this passage has two different pieces that I knew but forgot were together. So before we read, let's just review what a prophet is. In Numbers 12, Moses appoints elders to help with the task of shepherding the people because he's overwhelmed. And his father-in-law, Jethro, tells him, you need to use wisdom. You need to get help. You're going to burn out. So Moses chooses elders from among the people. And when he prays over them, the Holy Spirit anoints them and they begin to prophesy in the name of the Lord. And then we see in various places in the Old Testament how the presence of the Lord is given as an anointing for the sacred work which needs to be done. Now, the nation of Israel is a theocracy, which means that God is the ruler. God is the king of Israel, not a symbol, not a figurehead. Israel was ruled by God, and God's word was law. There are three human offices in Israel— prophet, priest, and king. Now the priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. And we know that when the people clamored for a king that Yahweh granted after warning them that they would have problems with that, the human king ruled with the authority given by God who is the true sovereign. And we know that there were good kings and bad kings and really rotten ones and evil ones that led the people to a place of their own choosing. But it is the prophet who has a place of distinction and honor because they spoke for God. They spent time in the presence of the Lord and then spoke only what they heard. In this way, the prophet then is the one who anoints the king, who instructs the king when things aren't going well, and then who tells them, your services are no longer required, thank you. So of the three offices, none is greater than the prophet. Now, Sandra, uh, Dr. Sandra Richter at Westmont reminds us that there's one reason why this is so important, and I love that she brings us out. Remember when the people came into the land that God promised for them, that there were neighbors already living there. And in the ancient world, like today, people want to know what's beyond the curtain, what's on the other side, what does God say, what do the gods will for them. And so there were a lot of sorcerers and magicians and people who made a career out of divination. We see this when Moses and Pharaoh have their showdown. They charged a lot of money to predict the future, and it was especially valuable for people in leadership positions. And a primary but messy way that they did this was to read the entrails of slaughtered animals. There's lots and lots of ancient manuscripts about this. So when the Israelites come into the new place, God set forth that this is not going to be the way that they were going to do life. 
And in Deuteronomy 18, God says, do not imitate the practices of the nations around you. We're not going to consult witches and mediums and people who talk to the dead. That is not how the people of God do life. That is detestable, he says, detestable to Yahweh. Instead, God says, I'm going to speak to you directly through a prophet. I'm going to raise up prophets from among you. And if you want to know the right thing to do or you need truth, you don't have to guess and you don't have to look at the stars and you don't have to hire somebody and you don't have to look at the intestines of dead animals. All you have to do is listen to what the prophet says and the word that I've already given you, the law that I've given you. And if a prophet varies or deviates from anything that I say, God says, they'll be put to death. So God chooses and anoints prophets and expects the people to listen. They are ambassadors who speak only what he says. And in our chapter today, we see Isaiah's call to be a messenger for Yahweh. Listen to what the Judaic Encyclopedia says. The prophet is neither a philosopher or a systematic theologian, but a covenant mediator who delivers the word of God to God's people in order to shape their future by reforming their present. Amen? The word of the Lord is meant, it's given to us today to, to reform our present so that the future is something that we want to walk into. So through prophets, God spoke guidance, hope, and rebuke, and restoration, and repentance. And all of the message taught by the prophets was a way for the people to know God and to keep the covenant that God gave them. So hear now the experience of Isaiah from the sixth, sixth chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the minds of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people 
and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it has felled. This holy seed is its stump. Let us pray. Oh God, you spoke the world into being. You spoke through so many kinds of servants, especially the prophets. And we know that you have a message for us today. Please speak through your word, through your Holy Spirit who is with us now. Amen. So this is a beautiful and perplexing message we have in front of us today. So we're simply going to break it down into two pieces, looking first at Isaiah's call and then um, what God wants Isaiah to speak. So we first uh, see how Isaiah puts his experience into a historical context when King Uzziah died around 740 BCE. This is important for a few reasons. Uzziah had a long reign marked by financial prosperity and stability. And when nations around him, especially Assyria, were threatening, um, he was a strong king. You can read his story in 1 Chronicles 26. He came to the throne at the age of 16 and reigned for 52 years. He did what was right in the sight of God. He sought the Lord, and in return, the Lord gave him success. He was very powerful, but near the end of his reign, that power caused him to be prideful. And he went into the temple and he burned incense, which is not something he is supposed to do. And when he was confronted by the priest, he raged and he became unglued. And then he was struck immediately with leprosy. So he lives with leprosy for the next few years and his son kind of reigns in his stead. And when he dies, Judah's hopeless and political spiritual situations become becomes more clear. So it's very important that Isaiah is saying to us, at the time of King Uzziah's death, this is when the Lord had me start prophesying in earnest. So just think about this vision that Isaiah had. Imagine that you are Isaiah for just a moment. And God is majestically on the throne so resplendent and grand that the angels cover their eyes and their feet. There's absolute power. There is vibrating presence here. Like in Revelation, the creatures sing the holiness of God and proclaim how the glory of the Lord fills the entire earth. In fact, just the hem of the Lord's garment fits into the temple. There is constant motion. And in the brightness and the transcendent majesty of God, Isaiah is overwhelmed. Sit with that for just a minute. Isaiah is overwhelmed by the glory and the power and the majesty of God. As the fire of the altar burns, we think about him seeing the reality of the forgiveness and the atonement and the reconciliation between humans and God. And in this, Isaiah also knows in a way that he never, ever could have before 
the reality of how unclean he is before God. He sees in a whole new way and understands how the realm of God is unlike any other. And in that place, his response is absolutely correct. In the presence of such light and perfection and greatness, he feels unworthy and he cries out, Woe is me! I am lost. That word lost can also mean I am ruined. I am destroyed. I am undone. In seeing the king, Isaiah sees how all of his people are also unclean. It's not just me. I live among people. All of us, none of us get this. And he probably believes he's going to die in that place. It's too much power and stimulus and intensity and light. The rafters are shaking. There's smoke everywhere. He knows he's only going to survive this encounter if God wills it. So Isaiah is humble enough to know he is so much less than the God before him. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he mentions how it's his lips that are unclean. My lips are so unclean. Let's think about that for a moment. Because with our lips, we deny and we rationalize and we blame. We curse and we lie and we slander. We puff ourselves up and cut other people down. We gossip, we hate, we shame, we scream, we manipulate, we blaspheme. Now, I don't know what Isaiah's feeling, but when I really stopped and think about this, I cringed. I cringed at my own words in my life. The things that I have said, the ways I have dishonored God. This is holy ground. We can't just hurry on from this. We have hurt others. And we have not honored God. So there is lament here. And there's no asking for forgiveness. There's just sorrow. Isaiah shows his heart here. He doesn't jump to seek forgiveness for what God can do for him. In the presence of sheer holiness, he is just humbled. And at that point, the seraph comes and touches Isaiah's mouth, and instantly he is cleansed. God saw his heart. It was his heart that was open to God. If his heart wasn't open, all of the coal in the world wouldn't cleanse him. How imperative and how wonderful for the prophet to understand at the core of their being who God is. Because how is it that Isaiah would go and preach repentance if he didn't understand what transformation truly feels like? This is preparation for what God would do next. At this point, he hears a voice saying, who will go for us? Here's the Trinity. Who will, who will go for us? Who will speak for the Lord? And perhaps he's so humbled and grateful and desiring to go and serve the Lord who just met him, Isaiah volunteers to go minister. Listen to this beautiful quote from Patrick Johnson. This is the foundation of our sending as the church. 
We are sent to join God in mission because we have encountered God, because we have been brought face to face with God's holiness and our brokenness, and because we have been made whole by God's grace. And in response to this worshipful moment, we lay our lives before God and in God's service. Isaiah hears the Lord say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And the prophet responds, here I am, send me. And at its root, Isaiah's cry of here I am is a response to God's presence and grace. Isaiah is not volunteering because he thinks he has skills that God can use or because he has lots of time on his hands. Isaiah is laying his life before the God who has encountered him and made him whole. This is such a deeply instructive passage for the church that we have a God inside of us all the time in awe and wonder. We can spend time with him at any moment. So how have your experiences of God compelled you to be sent out for Jesus? There's no other reason to go. There's no other reason to go. I don't want to go for any other reason except that Jesus has met me and changed me. When we read what God's commission looks like in the next section, we wonder if Isaiah would have been so eager to volunteer had he known what it would mean. We begin with verse 9 and 10 where God says that the prophet needs to keep preaching the word, but the people are not going to listen. They're not going to comprehend. They're going to look, but they're not going to understand. Not just that, but God appears to be telling Isaiah to deliberately preach in a way that the people will tune out because if they don't understand it, then they won't turn to him and they will not be healed. Ouch. So what exactly is Yahweh saying here? That's a good question. You have to sit in the tension of this a bit, I think. One thing to remember here is how God could have left them to their own devices. He could have stopped speaking at all, but the covenant demands his full participation with them. Isaiah knows what he's going to be up against. In some ways, it's a good thing that Isaiah knows what's going to happen. The people aren't going to be turning in large droves in repentance. And did you know that this is quoted in all four Gospels by Jesus? All four Gospels to explain why some would be able to understand the parables and some would not. In fact, we would say how Isaiah's preaching was still having prophetic effect in the life of Jesus 700 years later. We would think that having clear teaching would help people to know God more. And so then we think, well, like what's going on here? Is it just because God's mad? Is it because their hearts are so hard, like Pharaoh's heart was, that they have to hit some kind of rock bottom? Is it because God wants to give them more of a chance, that it might still be not too late for exile? Is it because he wants them to truly seek, truly invest their time and their energy? They've been through a physical wilderness, and now they're going through a, a spiritual one? Dr. Gordon Wong explains these verses as persuasive irony. 
I like that. Persuasive irony. And he says, divine judgment is not an idle threat. God isn't just making threats here. Yet Isaiah's commission was to urge repentance, not prevent it. The irony is, go ahead in your stubbornness. Become like the idols who have eyes but cannot see, who have ears but cannot hear. See how you do. There's lots of explanations we don't necessarily know, which is why we sit in the tension of this. When we read passages with Jesus, these passages from Isaiah with Jesus, one thing that we understand is how Jesus wants people to work out their faith. He's not going to give them all of the answers. He's not going to spoon feed them. He's not going to perform constant signs and wonders. He expresses disappointment when the disciples don't understand something. And then he makes a huge deal when he encounters great faith, like from the Roman centurion and from the woman at the well. In unexpected places, he loves that. And we know that in life we have to put some effort in, we have to put some faith and trust in, and the people here are not exercising any trust at all. They're happy to mock and blame and walk away from the Lord. When Isaiah asked how long he would need, so Lord, like how long do you think I have to do this for? <laughs> Good question. Isaiah, Isaiah, God doubles down. And God says, until everything is in utter desolation. The how long question is a question that we find in the Psalms when the writer is in physical agony or the enemy is pressing down on him. How much longer is what the martyrs in heaven say in Revelation? How much longer, God, are the people on earth going to have to suffer until you deliver them? The martyrs, the people persecuted for their faith. How much longer is the cry of our heart and God tells Isaiah, keep preaching while the people keep rejecting until the cities are destroyed, until nothing is left in the houses, until the land is desolate and the Lord sends everyone away. Now reading this might shake our trust in the Lord. But Isaiah has just had this incredible vision from the king of glory and does not question. And the prophet if he were here, it might emphatically reject any notion of anyone saying that God is vengeful or wants to destroy the nation or is evil, even though it might look like that. It would be a misreading of the whole book if we believe that God predestined Israel for destruction. God wants to heal people and help them find freedom. And maybe the only hope for the people was to bring them to the brink of being utterly wiped out. I don't know. I don't understand the mind of God. But it did make me think a little bit about chemotherapy. Our best, worst option to eradicate cancer, destroying all the good along the way in order for us to live. And if we refuse chemo, then the cancer is certainly going to kill the body. The cancer in Israel was going to kill them so God says, I have this antidote. That's going to be harsh. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But in order to save the nation as he has promised to do, the ungodly and the corrupt and the unjust and the perpetually unrepentant parts have to be dealt with first. God does not want his people to perish. 
So this radical life-saving technique is employed. Verse 13 is our place of hopeful waiting. Isaiah always gives it to us. After three devastating pictures, only the stump will remain. The stump is called the holy seed. It is used to preserve those who will be faithful to God. There will be consequences that will be unbearable, but it will not be forever. So we'll just stop and think, just sit in the tension of our hard-heartedness. When have you been so hard-hearted that nothing could penetrate? No love, no truth, no tenderness. When we are mad, when we are self-righteous, when we are full of pride, it is hard for God's love to get through. We don't want change. We don't want light. We don't want ice cream. We don't want anything other than what we are focused on, whatever that is, even if it makes things worse. And since misery loves company, we wonder if Judah has stayed hard as a group more because they're together, finding solidarity in their rebellion, becoming their own echo chamber against God. So let's just stop and consider the truth that the prophet is bringing to us today, whose personal experience with Yahweh made it an imperative that he would go and preach the word to Israel and even when he found out the impossible assignment, he didn't complain. He didn't back down. He understood the sacred partnership that he was being invited into and allowed the glory of the Lord to be his deciding factor. How often do we allow the glory of the Lord to be our deciding factor? And because of this, Isaiah is modeling what his own people desperately needed. A humble heart open to the truth of God's glory and the merciful cleansing of the Lord. I think this book is so full of hope because it mirrors the heart of Isaiah, who trusts God and knows that there's going to be a new day for the people that Isaiah himself loves. So take a few moments with Jesus right now, listening for what your Savior has to say to you, the altar is open. People are always here to pray with you. Let us have open hearts to what God is saying. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.